The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Skin care and plastic surgery are hot topics these days. Let Dr. Rubenstein answer your questions and explain what you'll want to look for in aesthetic products and cosmetic procedures. Get ready for a discussion about all things aesthetic. Now, live from Miami, Florida, American Board Certified Plastic Surgeon, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. Welcome to New Reflections. We've got a great show for you guys this week. I actually shouldn't say guys. Today's show is for ladies only. We're talking about female rejuvenation. And there's a lot that goes into that. You know, here in Miami, it's been a pretty popular thing for a while. And I think nationwide, in fact, worldwide, a lot of these procedures have been increasing in popularity. And they've also been increasing in controversy. And we're going to be talking about lots of different things and you know, when I started doing some research for the show and looking for different things, I found this is something that's not that uh, open. You know, obviously, we're talking about things that are sexually related and people like to have their privacy. And, and so there really hasn't been a lot for me to, uh, to find any numbers or statistics. It's really difficult to track, but we did get some information and we're going to have great discussions and joining the discussion is uh, a previous co-host of mine coming back for a guest co-host spot. I'd like to introduce uh, my friend and co-host, Pamela Howard. Good morning, Dr. Adam Rubenstein. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great. And better to have you on the show because the thought of me doing a show <laughs> for ladies only by myself was not something that I think people want to listen to. So I'm, I appreciate having you here for your your perspective and your terrific uh, contributions to the show. So, you know, when I was looking at this, this is one of those things that people do kind of keep quiet. And I don't think the numbers that you see out there are really representative of what people are, are having done. And we're talking about lots of different procedures. The numbers that I could find out were looking at the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. They had an estimate in 2011 of 2,142 uh, vaginal rejuvenations. And I think that's sort of a group term that's lumping together a number of different procedures, mostly labiaplasty, and we're going to talk about that. You know, Pamela, joining us on the show today, I should mention, we're going to have Dr. Susan Kolb, who's a board-certified plastic surgeon, as an expert in labiaplasty, and we're also going to have Dr. Edward Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is a board-certified gynecologist, and he will be joining us talking about a whole host of different procedures, including vaginal rejuvenation uh, and, and a number of other things, and we'll really get into this topic you know, this is something that for women, women start thinking about this as early as adolescence, according to what I've seen online, people writing about their experiences and writing about how they feel about themselves. And it, it really is, a, as one might expect, a controversial and very emotionally charged topic. I think women's sexuality in general is a suppressed subject in our society, and it creates a very hard area for women to feel open enough to discuss it and 
only recently since women's suffrage and the creation of birth control pills has women really felt like they could come out and discuss this. And we're jumping into a realm. Plastic surgery has opened up an incredible world for women, sexual and appearance. You know, we have breast augmentation. We have liposuction and tummy tuck. And now we can take that one step further, especially for women that have this very sensitive issue with a very, very private issue of their life. Yeah, and you know, it's something that they keep private, and which makes it hard to know exactly how popular it is. Now, there's a number of procedures we're going to talk about. And we'll start with labiaplasty. We're going to get to vaginal rejuvenation. We're going to talk about G-spot augmentation or amplification, and that's a very controversial thing, and uh, clitoral unhooding, and we'll explain what that is and talk about that. And anything else that comes up, if you have any questions or interest in talking to us about this, please give us a call, 866-472-5792. You know, Let's go ahead and, and get things started. There's so much to talk about, and we've got a little bit of time. I want to introduce my first guest, Dr. Susan Kolb. Dr. Kolb is a board-certified plastic surgeon who practices in Atlanta, Georgia, and has significant experience with labiaplasty and taking care of women in particular. Dr. Kolb, welcome to New Reflections. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, I, I really appreciate you t- spending your time on Saturday with us. Now, labiaplasty is something that, at least in, in Miami, we've seen more and more interest. And you have been doing this for a long time. Tell us a little bit about your experience where, when it started and the trends that you've seen over the years leading up to today. Well, I've been doing labiaplasty, which, by the way, includes the inner labia most often, the inner lips, but also can include the outer lips. So you have to differentiate between those two. And sometimes people want both along with maybe suctioning of the mons pubis. So there's a lot of different things that can be done. Um, I initially started uh, doing this when I was in the military because women uh, were required to run their mile and a half, which is now two miles, and um, it's it's very difficult to run and do certain exercises required of the military with enlarged labia. It is true that uh, lately a lot of people have been interested in this because they didn't know it existed. Uh, they'll go on the Internet and use Google and find out that it's actually a fairly affordable procedure that is really very safe and has minimal side effects or problems, and, and so they uh, go ahead and get it done. Yeah, you know, the privacy thing, I think it's sort of a slippery slope. You know, on one hand, people don't want to talk about it, and so that keeps things quiet and keeps it secret, and not many people know about it, and it's sort of a snowball effect, almost a reverse snowball effect, where since you don't talk about it, and no one writes about it, no one hears about it, it has taken a long time to gain popularity, but I think it's gaining momentum in the in recent years. It is, and there are some sites uh, actually run by a friend of mine, Jeffrey Cook, on the Internet, um, labiaplasty.com, uh, clitoronhooding.com. These kind of uh, things come up first in the search engines. And then you can look at various surgeons around the country that do this, including their pre- and post-op results, their fees, um, you know, their philosophies. And so you can do kind of a one-stop shop comparison of, uh, and see who you want to go to. And it's just great that we have those kind of uh, resources out there for folks. So how often are you seeing patients or how often are you actually doing this procedure on a weekly or monthly basis? Uh, weekly and sometimes more than one a week. I did one of our military uh, people stationed in Afghanistan yesterday. 
Um, she's home on leave, and uh, that's where I learned that I used to be in the military. We used to run a mile and a half, and now she says it's two miles. So um, these things uh, are very important. But I also want to mention that some of my uh, most grateful patients are those who have been sexually abused in the past. And even hmm. though they're married and their husband is very understanding, they have a lot of issues with sex and with the appearance of this area. And then when I do the surgery, I get these beautiful letters back saying how they've had sexual healing done and they feel very comfortable with themselves. So I think that that kind of surprised me that it can be so healing from past trauma. Yeah, really, and and it not only from trauma, but maybe people that haven't had trauma. This is something that is very, uh, very personally motivated and deeply felt. I, I would mirror the same experience in my practice. When I've yeah, think- done these procedures, you know, I've had patients that they come back. The most common comment that I get from this procedure is that patients have been thinking about it too long, and they should have done it a long time ago. Yeah, they're kind of like our breast reduction patients who come in and say, I wish I'd done this 10 years ago. Yeah, I think that's right. What's the average age of a patient considering this procedure? Most of my patients are in their 20s and 30s. Um, A few are even 14 to 16 years old. And oddly enough, insurance will usually cover the younger ones who who um, wow. may not be sexually active yet because they tend to be more severe and referred in by their GYN doctors or their pediatricians. And um, the uh, oldest one I've done is around uh, 65. So hmm. even at that age, especially when they're starting a new, uh, you know, looking for a new relationship, it gives them more confidence and also less discomfort during sex, which is important. Yeah, that's that is a, an issue. Whether it's sometimes it's functional and not. Now you mentioned insurance covers the younger patients. What qualifications? Let's say we've got a, a listener who's thirty to forty years old and has been thinking about this for a while. Something they're uncomfortable about. Never thought to get anything done, and now they hear this. Say, gee, you know, maybe something I want to take a look at. What might make insurance cover this type of procedure? Well, first of all, it has to cover the code. Um, so, and you have to use the correct um, ICD-9 code, as you know. Uh, so, you've got to code it correctly. And we generally get pre, um, you know, pre-approval with photographs and um, documentation from their GYN and/or family practice doctors that they have significant um, functional problems. Some people do have a history of infections, as you know. Uh, especially fungal and um, maybe bacterial infections because it's difficult to keep clean. A lot of women pee off to the side. If they have one labia that's long and one that's not, they pee to the side and it is problems using public restrooms. Hmm. Um, it's something that, that they uh, tell me and I, I can see why. Uh, so these are things that would be... Um, you have to well document well, and then you have to get a, a medical reviewer that is sympathetic, as you know. Yeah, well, that, that's that's always the case. That's always the yeah. case. It's, it is a lot like the breast reduction process. Now, you, earlier, you mentioned the inner lips versus outer lips. Of course, labia minora versus majora. Uh, tell us a little bit about the the different reasons people might want to have the labiaplasty done for each of those structures. 
Well, for the outer lips, it's generally people who are yoga instructors. I've had water aerobic instructors, people who for in their job have to wear um, tight-fitting clothing. Because if you have kind of an enlarged outer lip, you can see that. And they're very self-conscious about people looking. Um, and it's it's virtually impossible to hide it in, in tights or a swimsuit. Um, so those are the people that come to me for that uh, primarily. Although... A lot of women who are coming in for the inner lips also ask me if there's anything that can be done for the outer lips. And the inner the inner lips, um, there's a number of different um, reasons, but the primary reason is that they they don't like the looks of it. They've been made fun of before by previous partners, or they um, have uh, discomfort with exercise, sports, or um, sex. And that's you know that's one thing. Reason. One thing that I've seen in patients is frequently someone will come in because of asymmetry with one of their inner lips being much longer or bigger mm-hmm. than the other side. So that draws attention. They feel uncomfortable with the asymmetry that's down there. Right. Uh, let, let's talk about the procedure, the technique. Uh, it seems to me, at least in, in my hands, I find it, other than maybe a few fine points in the planning and respecting certain points of anatomy, it's a pretty straightforward procedure. It is. It gets complicated um, if there's things like duplication. I've actually seen duplication and very complex structures that made it more difficult. But the average patient is just a matter of trimming it off and making it look, uh, you know, proportional and symmetrical. And, you know, as you know, there's two ways to do that. You can trim along the, the long line of the labia, or you can make a V-cut and, and do it that way. Um, and I think a lot of people who use local anesthesia only tend to do the V-cut because it's less surgery. But I tend to, I, I like to just put people to sleep, inject the local anesthetic after the procedure, kind of like uh, you can do an eyelid sometimes. You know, you get a perfect result. You don't have any local obscuring anything, and then you inject afterwards. Um, and so I tend to do them under general, uh, and and uh, that way I know that, you know, what you see is what you get when when all is set, when the swelling goes down and the local goes away. Yeah, I, I actually like having patients very comfortable, so I'll either do it with sedation or general, and either way, I like to use local anesthesia uh, for a couple reasons. The mix that we use has some long-acting stuff, so when they wake up, they're more comfortable. And uh, we also use something that has a little bit of epinephrine in it, which, as you know, helps decrease the bleeding. And this this is a procedure, because there's such rich blood supply, uh, really needs a lot of attention to stopping bleeding in the area. Uh, yeah, it's important. And, yeah, let's, speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about some of the risk factors. What are some of the things that can go wrong? Well, you know, I, I'll tell you my secret. Um, it's uh, it's something that I think a lot of surgeons didn't think to do, and you may want to add to your regime if you're not doing it. This area has a lot of bacteria um, and a lot of uh, yeast as, as uh, in sexually active women anyway. So um, I treat with um, Cipro usually if they're not allergic for about a week, and I treat with Diflucan for two weeks. And doing this, I have completely avoided any hypertrophic scarring or any infections. I've, I've never had an infection. And so you're and doing that. You're it, doing that before surgery. Well, no, I do it. I give them IV Cipro, and then I give them the week and then the two weeks after surgery. So I don't pre-treat, but I treat afterwards where the scars are forming. Mm-hmm. Hypertrophic scarring is actually usually fungal oriented, and um, uh, we treat 
we treat with antifungals and sometimes with antibiotics because there's sometimes bacteria as well. And we've had great success um, in the burn units doing this. So huh. when things start to hypertrophy, we, we put them on antifungals and sometimes antibiotics and the, the hypertrophic scars actually go away. So, you know, this is an area you don't want a hypertrophic or, or a thick scar in because that could very well become symptomatic and you certainly don't want an infection yeah there's so, no question um, that you know the scar lines actually speaking of the scar lines it's really interesting how well this area heals in does. most cases the scar just looks like a normal anatomic line well, in a lot of cases, um, if you use the antibiotic and antifungal, you can't even see the scar in six right. months. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly it. my point. It's, it's really, it, yeah. the scar can be totally beautiful. Uh, right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'll, we'll talk a little bit about cost of having this done, and then we'll introduce our next guest and move on with the, uh, the topic today, which is female rejuvenation for ladies only. We'll be right back after a few short messages here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. Make sure you do your homework. Why? This is not my car I'm working on. I may settle for an okay job on that, but I won't settle for anything less when it comes to my body. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust. You can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. That's 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard in the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dr. Adam Rubenstein, board-certified plastic surgeon, and I'm joined with my co-host, Pamela Howard. And we're speaking with Dr. Susan Kolb, who is also a board-certified plastic surgeon and expert in labiaplasty. Now, we've just been speaking about the techniques and the different patients and a lot of the psychologic factors. The, the main thing people always want to know, we have not yet gotten to, let's talk about cost. It actually, in my estimation, is a pretty affordable procedure. Dr. Cole, what are your typical fees for uh, labiaplasty, say straightforward, just labia minora? 
Well, the procedure usually takes about an hour and a half. Uh, if you do it under general, it'll take less if you do it under local. And OR and anesthesia are based on time. So my average fee is just under 3000 And that includes MD anesthesia in a JACO certified surgery center. So it's very safe. And you can do it cheaper if you do it under local. But I agree with you. I don't like injecting this area. I don't like to hurt people. You know, I think that's a pretty standard fee, actually very, very reasonable for someone of your expertise. The nationwide uh, averages all are under $4,000. So having this labiaplasty, I think between, uh, say, $2,500 and $4,000 is, is what one can expect, and, and probably more around that $3,000 mark is the average in the market, no matter where you are. Uh, and and it, it makes it a very inexpensive procedure. I mean, people will sometimes spend more on injectables than having that done. And this is something that is a once-in-a-lifetime procedure, and it can change how you feel about yourself and make people for whom this is an issue much, much more comfortable. So, you know, not a big investment. Dr. Kolb, stay with us if you can. We're going to introduce our next guest. I'd like to introduce Dr. Edward Jacobson. Dr. Jacobson is a board-certified gynecologist and as a gynecologist for many, many years has been practicing various techniques of vaginal rejuvenation. And uh, we're happy to have him on the show. Dr. Jacobson, welcome to New Reflections. Thank you very much. Good morning, Adam and Pamela and Susan. Glad to be here. Great to have you on the show. Now, you've listened to the, the discussion about labiaplasty. Any uh, added pearls or uh, thoughts of your own about this? Yeah, most. I, I think what Susan said was excellent and uh, covers, uh, covers the area very, very well. My only thing that I, uh, I want to bring out is that most people have to understand that whatever they come in with, whatever size, shape, or asymmetry of the labia, they're normal. They don't have to have the notion that they're abnormal. This is just a variation of normal. And what's uh, available to them is the ability to do something about it if they're uncomfortable with it, whether it's a functional discomfort or a psychological or emotional discomfort. Yeah, I think it's a good point. A lot of the controversy, and we'll talk about this a little later in the show, a lot of the controversy that surrounds labiaplasty and really vaginal procedures in general uh, has to do with the notion that women are somehow feeling that there's something abnormal about them. And I think you're right, Dr. Jacobson, that this is entirely a variation of normal anatomy. Now, there can be functional problems, as Dr. Cole was discussing and you just mentioned, you, know, you can have real problems with your normal anatomy that make issues that you would like to improve. But this is just like having a, a nose that's of a shape you don't like or having breasts you don't like or having a big tummy you want to reduce. They're all normal structures, just not aesthetically pleasing to you and, and you're not comfortable with it. There's nothing wrong with that either. But it, you shouldn't feel as though there's something abnormal about it. It's just not the way you'd like it to be. Now... That, that is correct. Now, initially, people had some reticence about having this procedure because they thought it was related to, uh, or promoted by the pornography industry and there was a sense of what was normal. Uh, interestingly enough, the majority of the people in my practice who come for labiaplasty come for functional issues. They're athletic, they're swimmers, they're equestrians, and they, have, they could care less about how things look, but from a functional standpoint, it... Uh, it's grounds for major, major improvement after having the surgery. Yeah, so certainly functionally, there's, there's no question. You mentioned the porn industry. Uh, we, we may as well talk about this now since we're still on the topic of labiaplasty. There is a notion in, in the press that, uh, and you can read this online too, that 
the porn industry is to blame for the increasing popularity of these procedures. And the idea is that people watching pornography or you know flipping through things on the on the web, flipping through magazines, see uh, genital pictures, vaginal pictures. There are things that are very tidy, things that are that don't have larger labia minora, and it it instills this image of that being the ideal normal, and that anything that varies from that is not as pretty. And because of that, people are seeking more of these, and that's that's what's being put forth out there. Dr. Jacobson, what are your thoughts about that? What do you think the real influence of pornography has been? I think that's overstated. I think it may have been the case originally. Uh, the biggest uh, uh, impact that I've seen for people having an interest in having the surgery is for a pubic shaving, the Brazilian cuts, and so forth. And for the first time, tens of thousands of women, hundreds of thousands of women, are, are seeing their anatomy uh, where they didn't see it before. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, with, with waxing and the different sort of manicuring of hair, uh, there's been this realization of, of your own anatomy that maybe you didn't think of before. Dr. Cole, your thoughts on this, and on pornography? Um, I occasionally get women um, who are in the uh, exotic dancer industry, and um, I, I often agree that they need to have something done because of the, you know, the, the line of work they're in, and the, they're, they're far from the normal. Uh, in terms of, or the average look. Um, I do think that, uh, as I said before, I think the biggest change that led to people doing it in my practice is Google, because they can explore, um, you know, the different looks, the prices, the locations, and they can uh, uh, see that the procedure does what it says it's going to do. So, but you, you know, don't necessarily see people coming in to change how they look as a result of seeing some porn movie or something else on the internet. They don't. Do yeah. they actually bring pictures in and say, "Hey, I want to look like this"? No, and, and but you know, sometimes the breast augmentation patients do that. Not do that. That's that's very. That's a very good point. Well, you know, I've had patients come that that are that really have a big variance of normal uh, the, the normal appearance, uh, where they're they're quite uh, redundant or, or hypertrophic, and they do, they sometimes will bring a picture saying, you know, this is kind of what I'm looking for, not because it's something that they've seen in Playboy or Penthouse or something they've seen in a in a pornography a, a porno film, but because that's just sort of an example of, gee, I'd like to look like this. I'd like to be a little more tidy than uh, different than the way I look now. So as an example, but I, I don't think that at least it's been my opinion, and I think we all agree. It sounds like that pornography has not really been an influence in this. Uh, I'm not sure where that notion came from. Uh, but it doesn't really seem to be true, at least in, in the practices that are here on this show. That's uh, right. So, Dr. Jacobson, vaginal rejuvenation. You and I spoke a little bit about this uh, before the show, uh, the use of lasers, use of radiofrequency. But tell us, what is vaginal rejuvenation? Okay, vaginal rejuvenation is a very broad term. It includes everything that we just discussed uh, up to this point. But in addition, it includes operating on the uh, perineum, the area between the entrance to the vagina and the, and the anus and the in, inside portion of the vagina. This sub, uh, subtopic of vaginal rejuvenation would really be called uh, vaginoplasty and perineoplasty, where the attempt is to just to decrease the internal and external vaginal diameters 
usually because of previous childbirth. So there's increased friction and increased sensation during sexual intercourse. All right. So to, in a nutshell, the topic we're now about to, to, to discuss is sort of tightening procedures to make the vagina tighter, thereby making sex more pleasurable for both partners. Um, and that's the idea. So what, what are the ways of achieving that increased vaginal tightness? Okay, well, this is basically, these, these surgeries are modifications of a traditional, well-known gynecological procedures called rectocele repair uh, for uh, tightening the vaginal floor where there is a hernia, there's weakness, women feel uh, a lot of pressure, feel like there's something dropping out. And when I first got involved in this surgery, uh, many years ago, we've had women have the standard surgery, and then there were, some people come back saying their, their sexual uh, experience has been improved as a secondary benefit. And I think most gynecologists have had that, uh, that experience. Uh, what interested me was that uh, somebody was referred in to my office after having had that surgery, and uh, she said, excuse me, her, her friend was referred in, and her friend said, I want that surgery too just to improve my sexual feeling. So that, <laughs> that, was, that was a new notion for me, but that's uh, how we really got started in this about 10 or 15 years ago. Well, it's interesting how things evolve, but you know, there's always the old joke, I'm sure as a gynecologist you've heard this ad nauseum, you know, the old thing with a, a lady's having a baby and maybe there's a, a tear and you're going to, or there's an episiotomy and you're going to fix it, and so you're putting stitches in to, t to close things, and you know the husband leans in and says, "Hey, doc, you know, do me a favor, throw a couple extra ones in there, <laughs> tighten oh, things up." How many you know? thousands of times have I heard that? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But, yeah. but, but you know, that's just testimony to how to how common mm -hmm. the topic is. Right, and the other thing is this: many doctors will tell patients they do vaginal rejuvenation by tightening, where in fact they only work on the. Uh, uh, the outside area or only in one or two centimeters. And the proper surgery is to really diminish the entire internal vaginal diameter up to the level of the cervix, which is about seven or eight centimeters. And that becomes quite an involved procedure. Yeah, I would imagine so. But now instead of, and then you're talking about actually surgically removing a portion of it so that when you close it, it gets tighter. But now there are more modern techniques that don't require incisions. There are techniques now that uh, attempt to put grooves inside the uh, vaginal lining or the vaginal mucosa to increase uh, uh, irregularity uh, and potentially cause increased friction. I'm not so sure how helpful that is to the woman as it is to the partner. Uh, I'm not really aware of any other non-surgical techniques. Uh, for somebody who comes in who's had uh, two or three nine-pound babies and they can't hold tampons and they pass air out of the vagina, yeah. Uh, and doing things like uh, pelvic floor exercises and Kegel exercises. Uh, Kegel exercises generally don't work because because of compliance. They really require a lot of uh, a lot of intensity and in doing uh, sixty or eighty uh, tightenings every day for weeks on end to get some hypertrophy or uh, enlargement of the uh, of the levator or the pelvic floor muscles. And they still can't correct any hernia or space that has been created. Uh, between the muscles due to uh, vaginal deliveries. So tell me why a lot of these procedures, in fact, I think it's even a copyrighted term, laser vaginal rejuvenation. Where did the laser enter into the picture? Okay, well, <clears throat> this is a product of Dr. David Matlock, who probably single-handedly brought the whole concept of vaginal rejuvenation to the public view about uh, 12 or 14 years ago. And he found that by utilizing a laser, 
Uh, he'd be able to use it as a cutting instrument that'll diminish bleeding and be uh, a very effective instrument. I think uh, there's a lot of marketing to laser. Uh, you don't need to have laser. It can be done very, very well using standard uh, surgical uh, instruments and cautery. Uh, I use radiofrequency, but that's uh, more appropriate for labiaplasty uh, for minimizing scar formation uh, than it is for uh, vaginoplasty. So either way, we're really talking about a surgical procedure where a wedge of stuff is being taken out from the, the vaginal wall and then you're closing the two ends together and making the overall diameter smaller inside. Actually, I think it would be more appropriate to say you're basically making uh, an incision up the vaginal floor and creating what's called a flap. <clears throat> and that excess tissue is ultimately removed, but the, the core part of the procedure is to bring the, uh, the, the pelvic floor muscles called the levator muscles together in the midline and then to oversew the vaginal floor to further decrease the diameter of the vagina. That's, that's the inner portion of the procedure. One has to understand the, the outside portion has to be reconstructed as well. Usually when uh, children are born, the perineum or the outer area of the vagina flattens out, and uh, that has to be rebuilt because when that is at its original size, it'll push the partner against the clitoris and increase friction, the so-called sexual trigger. So that has to be built up without constricting the entrance to the vagina. So you basically have reconstructed the area, but you haven't caused pain upon penetration with intercourse. So lots of different things to consider. This is not something you want to go to an amateur for. And, and someone like you has had many, many years of experience, obviously is a safe choice. And we're, we always talk about board certification. You are, of course, a board-certified gynecologist. Uh, you want to make sure that you're doing your research on who you might be consulting with and ultimately choosing to have a procedure done with because there's great potential for problems with procedures like this. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk again about this vaginal rejuvenation technique and how you can choose the best type of doctor to see and have it done. We'll talk about costs and the risks and benefits and all sorts of things and get into other procedures after this short break here on New Reflections. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cosmetic surgery is a big deal. If you need a coronary bypass procedure, you probably want someone you trust and not the biggest bargain in town. You might get more than you bargained for. This is your face and body we're talking about. Do your homework. My doctor trained with world-renowned plastic surgeons. My doctor is a fully board-certified plastic surgeon. My doctor is an MD and on staff at several Florida hospitals. My doctor is an associate professor of surgery at a major university. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. People pick a doctor based on trust, and you can trust Dr. Rubenstein. He has the experience, knowledge, and artistic touch you're looking for. Call 305-792-7575. Call today for a free consultation in a multilingual office. That's 305-792-7575. Dr. Adam Rubenstein, Turnberry Plastic Surgery at Biscayne Boulevard and the William Lehman Causeway, where medicine meets artistry. My doctor is Adam Rubenstein. Your life, your health, your network. 
You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to New Reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein. If you have a question or comment for the host or this week's guests, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You can also send an email to info at dr-rubenstein.com. That's info at dr-rubenstein.com. Now, back to New Reflections. Welcome back to the show. We're having a great discussion today, and we're speaking about female rejuvenation. The show's called For Ladies Only, and we're speaking uh, as myself, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, board-certified plastic surgeon, and my co-host, Pamela Howard, and we're joined by Dr. Susan Kolb and Dr. Edward Jacobson. Now, Dr. Jacobson, you were just talking about the, the technique of uh, vaginal rejuvenation, and we were talking about the different ways of doing it, getting into you know why people do it, what it accomplishes. Let's talk about the the recovery process. I know Pamela, during the break, you were pretty interested in one. You said it sounds kind of painful. It sounds very painful. I'm real interested to hear what the recovery is for labiaplasty versus vaginoplasty, or both. So, Dr. Jacobson. Sure. Well, let's address the labiaplasty. One thing I do that many, uh, that most gynecologists would do in this procedure <clears throat> is give a, what's called a pudendal block, which is a regional nerve block with a little bit of epinephrine, a long-acting anesthetic. So my patients go home pain-free about, and they stay pain-free about 8 to 12 hours afterwards. Okay? Mm-hmm. The key to uh, pain control uh, is uh, ice, ice, ice. I do use some Toradol and some uh, mild... Uh, narcotic medications. Most of my patients uh, have a surgery midweek. They can go back to their normal activities the following week. Now, with vaginoplasty, that's a different story. It's a more extensive procedure. Uh, they, too, get a uh, regional nerve block, and they will be pain-free for only about four to six hours. Uh, they'll probably be able, right after the surgery, to be able to take care of themselves. They don't have to be bedridden. Uh, probably about two or three days before the swelling uh, and discomfort goes down. But they will have some residual discomfort for probably several weeks, and it's from the tightening, bringing the muscles together in the midline, and it does take uh, about two to three weeks before they uh, are alleviated, what we would call euphemistically as butt pain, uh, before they can get back to normal activities. They uh, won't be able to do uh, any strenuous exercises or have intercourse for about five or six weeks. So it's a pretty extensive recovery. And, and now, like labiaplasty, is the vaginal rejuvenation a one-time procedure, generally speaking? I would hope so. <clears throat> Obviously, <laughs> you, you can't guarantee. And the one thing that will destroy vaginal rejuvenation is another vaginal delivery uh, subsequently. Sure. So mm-hmm. it certainly is grounds for a uh, elective cesarean section. But well, oh, there you go. I mean, that's a good point to make. If, you, if you're thinking about having this procedure done, maybe it's smart to wait until you're not having any more kids. The only problem with that, Adam, is that people may want to wait two or three years before having another uh, child, and they like to have some sexual satisfaction in the meantime. Yeah, fair point, fair point. Uh, You know, these are all personal choices, and you just need to consider that, that having another child may reverse some of the correction that's been done by the procedure. So let's talk about cost. Okay, the cost for uh, vaginoplasty, which includes the entire vagina and the outer portion, 
is uh, $4,900 plus, in, in my neck of the woods, plus uh, the uh, surgery center and, and anesthesia fees. Total time of the surgery is about an hour and a half. So maybe another $2,000 or so, yeah. say roughly $7,000 total? Correct. That's about right. right. And what about in your practice for labiaplasty? Uh, $3,900 for labiaplasty plus uh, the, uh, the surgery suite and, and for anesthesia. A little bit higher in, uh, in the Northeast. Yep, you, well, mentioned, yeah. um, you mentioned radio frequency earlier for labiaplasty. What is that? Okay, there are basically three ways of doing labiaplasty with the specialized scissors. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess Susan can speak about that. Uh, laser and uh, radio frequency surgery or high frequency surgery. Uh, I had used laser for many, many years. Uh, it's an excellent cutting instrument. It coagulates uh, and closes blood vessels, uh, so the bleeding is almost negligible. The problem is there's a lot of thermal damage to the residual tissue, resulting in swelling and discomfort, people requiring more pain medication and taking longer to heal. Uh, for the past half dozen years, I've been using basically an old technique. Uh, radio surgery has been around for 40, 50 years, and it's just a new application of an old technology. The advantage is that a radio wave, uh, which is emitted through a cool metal tip, doesn't even touch the skin, uh, makes a very precise incision. So you'll still have the effects of the surgery, but you won't have the thermal damage. As a consequence to that, people are far more comfortable. They're up, they're walking around, their need for narcotic medications much less, and they heal well and get an excellent cosmetic result. Wow, that sounds great. Yeah, nice nice little, uh, everything old is new again eventually, right? There you go. One other thing I'd like to comment, Susan mentioned that uh, she uses antibiotics and, uh, and diflucan, antifungal medications. Uh, I also have virtually no infections afterwards, but for healing, I use a combination of uh, topical estrogen and I use a pharmaceutical-grade collagen, which significantly enhances healing and there's virtually no scar formation. Hmm. Well, you know, this is an area that heals so well, and in most cases, you don't really have a visible scar if, if you don't have any issues during recovery. Um, so I got a we, question. I have yeah. a question. What about women who smoke and have this procedure? Does that affect the recovery or the healing? Have great, you seen? Great question. I oftentimes will do combination procedures with my plastic surgeon, uh, uh, tummy tuck liposuction and so forth, and uh, he will absolutely not do a surgery on anybody who has smoked a cigarette within six weeks. Uh, yeah. But I haven't seen that to be an issue. I have people sign a disclaimer about smoking if they have just occasionally have a cigarette once or twice a day and not a problem. If they're heavy smokers, I ask them to stop for two to four weeks beforehand and to, can, to stop during the healing process afterwards as well. But yeah, the, blood supply, the blood supply is so rich that it, it, it's... Uh it's less of a of an issue, and you're not raising big flaps. You're you're trimming, but you're not really raising up in separating tissue as much as you might in a tummy tuck or a facelift. So I think it's a different situation. Still, smoking is not a good idea for the healing process. Exactly. Now uh, we talked about the the influence of pornography and, and dismissed that as a, any kind of real influence on why this is increasing in popularity. There's another controversial procedure, uh, and and that is G-spot augmentation. And G-spot augmentation, the Grafenberg spot, is is supposed to be an area in the front of the the, the vagina, the, the anterior vaginal wall, the front wall of the vagina, where there's supposed to be this heightened sensation that is sexually gratifying. 
And just the existence of the G-spot alone is very controversial. And this procedure to do injections, the idea being you'd, you'd put some filler material, either Restylane, Perlane, Juvederm, used to be uh, collagen. Uh, you can use any injectable material to increase the thickness in that area and maybe thereby increase friction during intercourse. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this, Dr. Cole? Have you, have you ever done one of these? Seen a patient that's had it done? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, so I don't have much experience. Dr. Uh, Jacobson, I was involved in uh, initially when this came out in 2003, and uh, I was very. Excuse me, one second. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was uh, really questioned the uh, the efficacy and and the safety of the procedure. It was originally uh, uh, using collagen as an injectable material. It would last for about four months or so. Uh, there's a lot of, um, there's obviously no studies on this, uh, just anecdotal information. The, uh, as you pointed out, the G-spot is controversial, although some people have recently claimed they have uh, seen, uh, been able to demonstrate uh, the area of increased like a plexus of uh, neurons in the area. Uh, even women who have had sensation, uh, sexual stimulation at the uh, so-called G-spot may or may not have had an increase in sensation with the injection of the uh, collagen, and it only lasts for about four months, and it's expensive. Yeah, it's just that it's controversial whether or not it's there. It's controversial whether or not the, the shots exist, uh, the shots will, will do anything for you. And it is anecdotal, meaning there's no scientific evidence to support that this really works or, or that it's doing anything. But anecdotal means that there's lots of people out there with stories that say it does work. So, you know, here on New Reflections, we're here to talk about the truth and to really try and dispel a lot of the mysteries and rumors about this stuff. There really is no truth to this that we can define. So, you know, do this at your own risk. Uh, it, it, now the thing is, talking about risk, now Dr. Jacobson, you've seen some patients that had trouble. Exactly. I was going to say, if anybody's going to go ahead with a G-spot amplification, at least have them use collagen, which doesn't stay around for a long time. I've seen a couple of patients come in who are injected with Restylane and other longer-acting fillers. Uh, it's, uh, they're bulking agents, and they actually block the urethra, or the outflow mm -hmm. of urine, uh, requiring self-catheterization until the material can be absorbed. So, uh, caveat emptor, be careful. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a disaster. Yeah, not fun. Not fun to have to catheterize yourself. But you know, the people that have had it done say that it, it that that it appreciated. Say that it really has made a change for them. There's no evidence scientifically, medically, to say that that should be the case. So be careful. Proceed at your own risk. And there is not a completely benign thing to have done. There are problems you can have with it. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, the next procedure that is also a little controversial: clitoral unhooding. Now sometimes. This can be part of a labiaplasty. Dr. Kolb, have you done any of this? Yes, quite a bit, actually. Um, I think it's a misnomer, though. You don't actually touch the primary clitoral hood. Uh, in fact, it's best to stay away from that because that hood has to go up and down over the clitoris, um, and if it's stiff with any scarring, uh, it can't do that, and it can impede um, sexual function. So what we're really talking about is a secondary hood, and it's a trimming procedure. I try not to make them come together at the top. I try to just do them on the sides, and it's really a procedure that in the right patient will bring 
um, tissue uh, together in a, in a way that helps uh, sexual function, helps female orgasm. And our patients have uh, had good success with this. And I think there was a study that a group of us published in the Journal of Sexual Medicine that also indicated, you know, more of a uh, all over the country, different GYN and plastic surgeons reporting, and uh, it it actually is uh, beneficial for sexual functioning, according to um, you know the surveys we sent out to our patients. Now, see, try and make this a little easy to understand. You're talking about a primary and secondary clitoral hood. Now, of course, the hood of the clitoris, for those of you listening that might not know, and I might say that most of the men listening have probably been accused of not having any idea what the clitoris is. Uh, the, the, the hood over the clitoris is a, a little flap of tissue. It's sort of the equivalent of the foreskin of a man's penis, and it, uh, it, it forms a little sheath that covers around the clitoris, uh, and, and you're talking about a primary and secondary. So see if you can explain so that people listening can understand what the differences are. Where's the primary and where's the secondary clitoral hood? So women listening might say whether or not they might be a candidate. Well, what I'm saying is the secondary clitoral hoods is tissue outside the primary hood. It's not truly a hood in every patient, but it is folds of tissue that if you take the folds down and um, tighten the tissue uh, by sewing it back together, that the um, the the primary hood then is um, is able to come up a little bit and expose the clitoris more during sex. So what you're talking about by primary and secondary is the the part of the hood or, or the sheath that covers the clitoris itself up to the tip of it, you'd call primary. And if there's anything hanging over that area that is, that is a, truly a hood, that's what you'd call secondary? That's correct. Okay. So for those of you listening, maybe never had great gratification from any clitoral stimulation during sex, and you might have a little extra tissue covering your clitoris, and that's kind of blocking the stimulation of the clitoris, and you might be a candidate for this. How often do you see someone coming with this complaint, Dr. Cole? I see it probably um, a couple of times a month. Uh, yeah. Maybe a quarter of the patients I do enter labion also request clitoral hood. And some are for appearance, uh, there's no question. But when somebody comes in with a significant problem, and there's a certain anatomy in that area, um, I'm fairly comfortable telling them that I think I can help their sexual function. Hmm. Uh, you so know, you've having, seen having having definitely, done it a number of times before. Sure. So you you definitely have personally seen the the results being significant. Right. Dr. Jacobson, do you have any experience with this? Yes, I have. I'd just like to add something on to what uh, Dr. Colvin said. Many times women will come in with a lot of excess tissue called excess prepice, which is a tissue that's adjacent to the clitoral hood. And if it's, they come in just for a labiaplasty, they have to understand that after the labia have been reduced, that this area, at least to the eye, will look very, very, very prominent. And people mm-hmm. have to be aware of that uh, and uh, consider the recommendation of having that reduced down so there'd be an, a normal flow uh, into the uh, reconstructed labia. Sure, that's a good point. I mean, obviously, when you're doing your planning, you look at the overall situation and make sure that you're planning properly so that you're not going to create 
you know, uh, an improvement in one area, which then creates a situation in another. Right. There's there it, we're talking about a little bit of controversial things throughout the show, and during the, one of the breaks, we had a conversation about some of the criticisms of these procedures, and uh, one of the the criticisms that I came across in preparing for the show is something called the New View Campaign. And I'm going to read an excerpt. This is something I found in Wikipedia. And you, if you Wikipedia labiaplasty, at the bottom of this of the entry, you'll find this, this notation about the New View Campaign. Here's what it says. It says, in the U.S., the feminist organization, the New View Campaign, formally opposed labiaplasty or genitoplasty as part of the medicalization of female sexuality which the organization said is a great public mental health problem of contemporary American society. The specific opposition was to the existence and operation of legally unregulated cosmetic surgery clinics that function as business enterprises trading upon the medicalized sexuality of women by appealing to their low self-esteem and poor body image, thereby creating new health risks and social norms about what prettiness is and what prettiness is not. Adam, this could be said about breast augmentation 30 years ago. Yeah, sure. Oh, and this is this is the typical uh, detractor's opinion about almost any aesthetic procedure. And you know, of course, here we're talking about women. It, it could be this could be the argument against any aesthetic procedure. But what is what is your thought? Obviously, it would be a, a much happier world if everyone loved the way they looked and never had a problem with it, but it's just not reality. People are going to feel uncomfortable about various things. Psychologically speaking, you know, do you see any – obviously, you, both of you do these procedures, so you're not in, in, in any way uh, influenced not to do these. But, I mean, this, this just raises the point that women are going to be uh, vulnerable and they are influenced by sociologic norms. And how does this all fit in? Is there any credence to this? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting that uh, 30 years ago, I, or actually 20 years ago, I debated the head of now, uh, the actual president of National Organization of Women, on CNN on the topic of um, whether or not breast augmentation was, uh, you know, something that society was doing for. To, for women's low self-esteem. And after I put, presented my point, she actually said on air that, uh, I should have gone ahead and done it, but nobody else uh, should do it for the other reason. She, she agreed that the reasons that I did it for were fine, which was hilarious. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I think what, uh, we were saying, all three of us are saying is that, the majority of the patients that come to us come to us with functional problems. And, you know, I I believe that if a woman is not having adequate orgasms, that is a functional problem. Oh, yeah, no and, doubt. But is there anything wrong with, uh, with a woman? You know, in Miami, people wear bikinis and, you know, little tiny ones on the beach all the time. And, and as Dr. Jacobson pointed out, uh, with the Brazilian waxing, everything becoming really more prominent and more visual, more visible, I should say, uh, is there anything wrong with just wanting to look better? I don't Absolutely think there not. is. Absolutely not. Right. I mean, as you said, as we all, I think, agree, this is no different than having a rhinoplasty, a nose surgery, or having a breast augmentation or a breast reduction or any other procedure that may have uh, really aesthetic 
improvement. Of course, there's always functional components, and no one argues the, the functional uh, improvement of these procedures, that, that it's appropriate to do that uh, for functional reasons. But my feeling is, it's just like any other aesthetic procedure. If you're doing it for self-motivated reasons, and you're, you know what your benefits and your risks are going to be, and you're willing to take the risks in order to get the benefit, it's important to you, it's worth doing. Well, dang, throw me in jail. I married my plastic surgeon. You know, I mean, this is this is the, a hell of a war on women from my point of view as a woman of uh, plastic surgery for over 20 years. I was introduced to plastic reconstructive plastic surgery for reconstructive purposes. And to say that vaginoplasty or labioplasty is for the sole purpose of sexual pleasure, therefore it be, should be prohibited – is asinine. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think we're we're preaching to the choir here. Yeah. Uh, right. I, I hope I hope that everyone listening has enjoyed the show. We're coming to a close, Doctor Kolb. Folks in the Atlanta area or anywhere else might want to get a hold of you. How do they do that? Our website is www.plasticos.com. P L A S T I K O S. And they can reach us at 770-457-4677. And Dr. Jacobson, up in the Northeast, how are they going to get a hold of you? All right, we're in Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, the website is www.cosmeticvaginasurgery.com. And the phone number is 203-869-8360. Terrific. Now, Dr. Kolb, uh, parting thoughts? Well, I, I want to... Uh, let women know that uh, they they need to research um, very carefully before they go to a surgeon. I do see most of the um, significant problems that occur, and over-resection is a big problem, uh, uh, or asymmetry because resection isn't done correctly. So please research and go to someone who does these procedures frequently rather than somebody who thinks that they're real simple and they can just uh, do it under local with with um, no prior experience. Yeah, definitely important. And Dr. Jacobson, your, your final parting shot? Yeah, I would just like to expand on what Dr. Kolb said. Uh, there's no certification for these procedures, even by board-certified doctors. And uh, you don't want to go to a doctor who's gone to a weekend course and uh, you're going to be his first or her first. Uh, you go to a doctor who's gone, undergone a preceptorship, that is they've spent time one-on-one with a mentor and uh, spent plenty of time in the operating room and who's learned how to uh, handle materials and uh, has experience, direct experience with, uh, with an expert. So experience is key. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Susan Cole, Dr. Edward Jacobson, and, of course, my lovely co-host. I'm so happy to have you back on the show, Pamela Howard. Uh, upcoming shows are going to feature, we'll, talk, we'll be talking about plastic surgery websites, different techniques and necklaces, stem cell therapies, and just coming back from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, we'll have a technology update, all the latest and greatest from the show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every Saturday, 12 to 1 Eastern Time, on New Reflections. See you next week. We hope you stayed informed and entertained today on New Reflections. Please join your host, Dr. Adam Rubenstein, again next Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time. You can also email the doctor at info at dr-rubenstein.com. 
or visit his website at www.dr-rubenstein.com. And don't forget to join us next Saturday for new reflections on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a beautiful weekend. Thank you.